is a subject of idolatry. Let me just read the verse that we're taking as our key verse to consider as we think about this subject. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So John ends this book with a, a, I think, amazing exhortation. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So we've been looking at this subject of idolatry. And the last time we dealt with the idol of religion. And I do want to continue along those lines this morning. And uh, actually probably one more time. This is a biggie when we talk about idolatry. Religion can be such an idol. Uh, think about that. A, a person's religion can be their idol. And I think this happens partly when a religious system itself becomes ultimate. It becomes an idol. Religion, even the right, true religion of Christianity, is to bring us to God. We don't just rest in the the external aspects of this system. It, the system is to bring us to Christ. So if the system itself becomes ultimate, then it becomes an idol. And I'm just going to do a brief review here as we mainly looked at the Old Testament last time on this subject, we saw that the first two commandments that God gives in the Ten Commandments dealt with idolatry. And the fact is the Jewish people were continually falling in this area, falling into this sin. Often this happened because they took the worship of the true and living God and merged it with the worship of of false gods from the nations around them, the Canaanites. By compromising God's standard and cooperating with false, false religions of the day and the worldly powers that were around them, the Jewish people changed the truth of God into a lie. God had given them the right way to come to him and to worship him, but they merge that with a bunch of other things and they change the truth of God into, the, into a lie. And even in the midst of terrible sins, and we looked at this uh, in a little detail last time, in the midst of terrible sins that they picked up from the cultures around them, ritual prostitution and child sacrifice, uh, they were trusting in their religious system of temple worship and the sacrifices that God had, had uh, mandated for them. They were trusting in that, that everything was okay, even as they were doing these other things. Their religious system was so much an established part of their society, they actually believed God was still with them. In reality, the system itself was now an idol that God hated. Are you, are you with me on this, what we're talking about here? As God says in Isaiah, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. There's, they had these solemn assemblies in the temple and all the trappings of their uh, religion that God had given them, and yet here was this iniquity right intermixed with it. He says, I can't endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. A lot of these things were things that God set up. But he said, God says, I hate them the way you're doing them now. This system that you've built up, this religious system, I hate it. Let me just read something here. This is from a book called Idols for Destruction, which I've taken a number of uh, the thoughts from that I've shared uh, in these past messages. But I thought this was very significant. 
idols are hard to identify after they've been part of the society for a time. It becomes, quote, normal. It, be, it became, quote, normal for the people of Jerusalem to worship Moloch right there in the temple. And it seemed odd that people calling themselves prophets would denounce the practice. I mean, we're, we're practicing our religion. Moloch was part of the established religious scene, one that had directed the nat national cult, national religion, throughout living memory. This is just the way we do things. The idol was supported by all the best elements of society, the political, economic, and religious power structure. So the point is, and I think this is really important for us here as we're thinking about this subject of idolatry, especially religious idolatry. I'll read the first line again. Idols are hard to identify after they've been part of the society for a time. Now, we need to apply that. You know, right now today in our, our lives here in America, we must be asking God to show us our idols, our contemporary idols, the things that are all around us. A lot of them we take for granted. Consequently, we miss the fact that we're falling, in, falling into idolatry, just like these uh, Jewish people back uh, in the Old Testament. Well, we pointed out that the power of a religious system that becomes an idol comes from three primary sources. These religious systems primarily and powerfully appeal to the flesh. They're empowered by Satan and are almost always combined with the power of the world. If you think about this thing of abortion and put those three things in, First of all, it appeals to the flesh. This is just an easier way to go, they, people think. It's empowered by Satan. If you think, I mean, if you really dwell on what goes on in the abortion clinics, you have to say, this is, there's something more going on here than just, just the flesh. So they're empower, it's empowered by Satan. And it's almost always combined with the power of the world, financial power, political power, military power. Well, probably not so much military power on this one, but the financial power and the political power are behind this thing. So I'm just saying, just even in this area we're thinking about here this Sunday, a Sanctity of Life Sunday, these things apply. This is very contemporary. So these systems, these religious systems, can impress people with all that's involved in them. They also have the power to repress people if you don't go along with it. So they impress and they will repress. They will come after you if you don't go along with the system. In the New Testament times, the early church had to deal with both the Jewish religious system what's called in the book of Revelation the synagogue of Satan, and the religion of the Roman Empire centered in Caesar worship. And in the book of Revelation, I think that uh, actually is symbolically uh, represented by the beast. So the emperor in the Roman Empire, the, the, it was demanded that you worship the emperor as divine. So what the early church had to contend with was both the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman leaders persecuting them, persecuting the Christians. Why were they persecuted? For one thing, primarily, and that is for placing their supreme allegiance in Christ. Not in the state, not in the Jewish religious system. Putting their, their whole allegiance, their supreme allegiance in, on Christ. The idol of religion coupled with the idol of power was brought against the church in order to crush it. You think about this tiny church starting out and here you have this massive Jewish religious system that existed for centuries 
and you have the power of the Roman Empire coming against this little group. And yet, what happened? Well, by the life-giving power of God, the church persevered through 30 years of Jewish opposition and 300 years of Roman persecution until 312 A.D., when the Roman Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity. Now, that's kind of where we left off last time. And I want to pick up there and just talk about what happened at the time of Constantine and shortly thereafter. Because suddenly, you had a different situation. The Jewish system was pretty much out of the picture. In fact, it Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And now you have a situation where the power of the state, the Roman system, because of Constantine, seems to be on the side of the church. See? It looks like things have really changed for the better. Actually, Satan was subtly changing his tactics against the church. There was this edict of toleration that Constantine put forth to stop the persecution of the Christians. And they were thankful for that. And I want to read you a little something here in a minute to just give you a little feel for why, why they would have been so thankful uh, for the stopping of this persecution. There were also some very positive things that soon came about through the laws that were enacted because of the new Christian influence in the government. For instance, let me just read you some of the things that came about through this uh, time of Constantine accepting Christianity. First of all, the punishment of crucifixion was abolished. Gladiator games were prohibited, although they still went on they were officially prohibited. Uh, infanticide was discouraged, and the treatment of slaves, better treatment of slaves, was encouraged. For instance, this just shows you what kind of an age we're dealing with here. Branding was no longer to be performed on the face of slaves and convicts. That's that's an advancement, you see. But think of what we're dealing with. Think of what I've mentioned here. No more crucifixion. Gladiator games prohibited. Infanticide uh, discouraged. And better treatment of slaves. You can't brand them on the face anymore. I mean, this was a brutal age we're talking about. And this was a movement because of the influence of, of Christians and Christianity, a movement in the right direction, but as Philip Schaff says, church historian, he says, the Roman state with its laws, institutions, and usages was still deeply rooted in heathenism and could not be transformed by a magical stroke. The Christianizing of the state amounted, therefore, in great measure to the paganizing and secularizing of the church. The world overcame the church as much as the church overcame the world. I'm talking about what happened here at the time of Constantine. The temporal gain of Christianity was in many respects canceled by its spiritual loss. So, this... I mean, if you want to remember dates as far as church history and important world events, this was an incredibly important world event. 312 A.D., Constantine has a conversion experience of some nature. I want to tell you about that a little bit here in a moment. So what I want us to see here just as we're uh, looking at this is the similarity of what happened after the time of Constantine with what we looked at last week related to the Jews in the Old Testament. When the Jewish religion was combined 
with the heathen Canaanite religion, it became an idolatrous religion. Yet, even though that was the case, many Jewish people still trusted in their religious system, that, it, that this system they were in pleased God. Likewise, when the Christian religion was combined with the pagan concept of a state religion, a church-state situation was what Constantine was creating, it became an idolatrous religion even though many Christian people thought that their system still pleased God, that this new thing that was being created in the time of Constantine was still just a, a, the Christian religion that God had established in Christ. Just as the Old Testament prophets were persecuted for standing against this sinful Jewish system, that sinful Jewish system at the time, even so, after the time of Constantine, many of Christ's true followers were persecuted for standing against this state church system. This religious thing that they build up actually ends up persecuting God's people. Well, what I intended to do this time, but it just got too long, was to show how this system progressed through the Middle Ages and really right up into our own day. But to cover 2,000 years of church history uh, was a little too much. Well, uh, well, so I'm going to try that next time. <laughs> <laughs> right now we just want to look at Constantine and that time right around Constantine. So let me say a little bit about this guy. Let me just, I know you probably can't see this very well, but that's the guy. That's from a huge statue of Constantine. So he probably uh, probably looks something like that because this was made in, in his day. All right, so that's the guy we're talking about. He was a Roman military commander that was seeking to gain control of the Western Roman Empire. He had some other military commanders that he had to deal with and defeat in battle for that to take place. So just prior to a major battle in October of 312 A.D., Constantine said that he saw a flaming cross in the noonday sky with the words right there on the cross or by the cross, in this sign conquer, okay? So he has, he's looking up in the sky, it's, it's noonday, and he sees a cross up there, and it's, with that cross it says, in this sign conquer. Later on in the night he was told by God to use a particular sign on his shields and banners. Now, the sign wasn't the cross. It was uh, the first two Greek letters in the name of Christ. Now, I, I don't have as uh, good a picture of this, but you, you will see this around still used as a representation of Christianity and Christ. What it is, the first two letters in Greek for the name Christ for us look like a P and an X. And you, they were superimposed on one another. So that's, can you, can you see that back in the back? All right, so, so that's, he, he's told that uh, he should put this on the, the uh, uh, shields and his banners, this symbol, and go out and fight this battle. Uh, So he considered that, of course, a special sign from the Christian God that he'd been hearing so much about from Christians. Um, Christianity had permeated the empire by this time. Even though it was being persecuted, it was still advancing. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, we're, we're told. So he knew about Christianity. So he considered this a special sign from the Christian God. And uh, he went out and won the battle. Consequently, 
he thought he needed to allow Christianity to be spread throughout his empire. Uh, in other words, he had this edict, made a special edict, edict allowing for the toleration of all religious groups, including Christians. But he didn't just do that. He started granting special privileges and favors to the Christians and Christianity. I want to read you some examples of this. First of all, he exempted church leaders. And by this time, you, start, you had this development of this idea of the, the clergy, you know, a special group of people that uh, were recognized as having a special status. So, so he exempted church leaders from military duty and exempt, exempted the churches from taxation. He also sought to enrich the church through giving money for building projects and granting a fixed income for church leaders from the imperial treasury. So the, the state is going to pay the leaders, the church leaders, if you say the right thing. Go along with the system. So you have that type of thing. He also recognized Sunday as a special day of rest throughout the empire. But let me read the, the uh, statement that he made. He said, All judges, city people, and craftsmen shall rest on the venerable day of the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N. Now, why did he say it that way? Because prior to his... Uh, acceptance of Christianity, he was a sun worshiper. And it's pretty clear from the things that he said and did that he tried to mer merge that sun worship with the worship, the sun, S-U-N, with the, the Christian worship of the Son of God. He just kind of wanted to combine those things in this new situation that he was creating. So he tried to incorporate this sun worship into his new acceptance of Christianity. Another thing I want to point out at this point is just that he retained his former title as the head of the Roman religion, which was, uh, the title was Pontifus Maximus. Now the Maximus part means maximum or greatest, and the Pontifus Pontifex part has to do with being a bridge builder, but the idea was that the empire, the emperor, was the divine bridge between earth and heaven. In other words, he was the supreme religious leader of the Roman Empire, the supreme leader of the state religion of Rome. Now, the reason that the reason I point that out, a couple reasons. One is that he, he kept that attitude and title even as he was dealing with Christianity. Now I, you see, now I'm the Pontifus Maximus of this new religion. The other reason I pointed out is because later on, a century or two later, the Roman emperors dropped the title, and who picked it up? The Pope. That's what the Pope's called today. He put great emphasis on recognizing so-called holy places. Holy places. He, he was the first to have a church built on the place that's now called Vatican Hill, where the church of St. Peter's is built. Well, he built the first one of those right there in Rome. And then he sent his mother, Helena, to Jerusalem to find all the holy sites that they'd heard about in the Bible. So Constantine's mother goes over to Jerusalem and finds the place supposedly uh, where Jesus was crucified and buried. And so they build a church there, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then they find uh, she finds a place where Christ was supposedly born, and they build something there. 
and the place where he ascended back to heaven and they build something there. So they're building all these religious sites. And then when she comes back, when she comes back from Jerusalem, back to Rome, she brings back with her all these relics that she found. People said, well, this is this and this is this back from the time of Christ. For instance, she brings back some nails from the cross, supposedly. Well, Constantine, being the person that he is, uses one of them for an ornament on his helmet as, his, as a military leader and uses another one of them shaped into the bit for his war horse. Now this uh, I ought to tell you something about what's happening to Christianity, you see. Uh, just as a little aside here, the, they also brought had some of these pieces of the true cross you know, these pieces of wood. This was from the cross. By the Middle Ages, a few hundred years, you know, a thousand years from now, it was said that there were so many pieces of the true cross that you could build a large ship <laughs> from them. Well, anyway, that's the type of stuff that's coming into Christianity now because of what Constantine's doing. Uh, Constantine made sure that the clergy of the major churches like in Jerusalem or Constantinople uh, or there in Rome had special vestments to wear because that's really important, you see. He had these special things as the Pontifex Maximus to wear so they should have some special vestments to wear too. Uh, so I'm, the reason I'm bringing all this out is because we're talking about the idol of religion. The idol of religion. These are the type of things that religion thrives on but has very little to do with really knowing God. Uh, in fact, most of those things get in the way of truly knowing God. But religion... Of thrives with this type of thing. And actually there were much worse things that were taking place than these external changes because the whole definition of what the church is and what a Christian is was being radically altered by what Constantine was doing. Instead of the church being a gathering of true Christians, now what you had is what's become called Christendom. Christendom. What do I mean by that? Well, Christendom is an earthly political kingdom or kingdoms uniting all the people of that land under the church's teaching. But it's a political system, kingdom, with combined with the religious teaching of the church, Christendom. Just as the Jewish people could be part of Israel back in the Old Testament by taking part in the outward trappings of Judaism, even so now a person could be part of this system of Christendom by taking part in the state's religious requirements without any true knowledge of God, you see. See, you didn't, back in the Old Testament, you didn't, ha you didn't ha really have to know the Lord to be part of the Jewish system. You were just born into it because you were a Jew. But the difference in the New Testament is when to be part of the church, you have to know the Lord. But to be part of Christendom, you did not have to know the Lord. You just had to go along with these outward external state requirements. You were, you were born into the system because you were born into this political area. So, this is a radical, you see, this is a radical change in what a Christian is and what Christianity is all about. Well, I want to just examine that a little bit more with you here this morning. Uh, I think it is good to remember, though, because you might say, well, how could people, how could people fall into that? Well, one of the reasons they could fall into that was because of what they had experienced, what 
how bad it had been just a few years before. And I just want to read this to you here. <clears throat> just This is just 10 years before times we're talking about right now. This was the 10th and greatest persecution came under Diocletian, and it began in 303. Okay, so this emperor Diocletian puts on a terrible persecution against the Christians beginning in 303 A.D. Now remember, Constantine had this conversion experience in 312, so this is just, just prior to this. Not only were all Christian assemblies prohibited and all copies of the Bible ordered burned, but relentless persecution was aimed at wiping out Christianity entirely. The emperor, who had himself proclaimed as Lord and God, was determined to wipe Christianity off the map. Uh, so many Christians were thrown to the beast that it was said that the, the, the animals were actually weary from trying to kill Christians. They just wouldn't even attack them anymore because there were so many Christians being fed to the beast in the amphitheaters. Soldiers became weary of killing. Homes were set on fire. Christians were weighted with stones and tossed into the sea. An entire city of Christians in Phrygia was burned together with all of its inhabitants. The more merciful governors tried to delay the orders or merely cut off the ears or split the noses or put out the right eye of otherwise, or otherwise maim the Christians. That was the more merciful of the people under this uh, emperor Diocletian. It was a savage bloodletting of the best of the church. Twelve years later, when Constantine met with the leaders of the church at the Council of Nicaea, which I'm just about to talk about, a little, tell you a little bit about. It was a strange assembly which surrounded him. Many were without eyes, others without arms or hands, others maimed in various ways, a gathering of men who had faced death for the faith. But there were other people at this uh, gathering also. So I, I just read that to say, you know, it's easy for us to sit back and say, well, those guys shouldn't have gone along with Constantine. And a lot of Christians didn't. But a lot of them are so relieved to be past this time of terrible persecution that I think they were, you know, maybe not seeing things as clearly as they should have. Anyway, after Constantine is converted, so I put that in quotes, uh, he realizes he's got a problem in the empire because even though he's tolerant of Christianity, he, f he finds out these Christians, uh, professing Christians, have different ideas about things. And he says, well, I can't have that because what I want is a religion that unifies the empire, a state religion that unifies things. So he said, I've got to get this taken care of. And of course, since he's the, the great bridge builder and the one in charge of religion, he calls a council. And it's the first church council called the Council of Nicaea because that's where it was held in the city of Nicaea. This was in 325. And it dealt with the theological issue of the day, the deity of Christ. I mean, this is a major issue that they're talking about here. Uh, now, he didn't understand the importance of the issue, but he did know that he wanted unity. He wanted to, uh, to unify the beliefs throughout his empire. The people that did not believe in the deity of Christ were called Arians after their main uh, leader, Arius. And uh, basically they said that Christ is a creature. He's not the eternal Son of God, uh, co-equal with the Father. Now, I'm not going to go into all that, but I just want to say this council under Constantine decided the correct doctrine, not because 
he knew anything about what was right or wrong. But because of some very persistent Christians that were there that said we cannot allow this idea of Christ being a mere man. Yes, he was a man, but he was also 100% God, 100% man, 100% God. So they had the right, uh, came up with the right doctrine, particularly because of a man named Athanasius who was persistent in that. And it certainly seemed good that that was the case, that they came out with the right doctrine. But you had a problem, and the problem was the arrangement of this whole thing with the emperor presiding, presiding over church issues. That soon proved to be very detrimental. The negative consequences were not readily apparent to many of the people at the time. They were just grateful that Constantine had stopped the persecution and were thankful that he seemed to be against this false doctrine or was going to put a uh, stop to this. Surely the support of the emperor was a good thing, but things are not always what they seem, and some things that seem good on the surface, if you dig a little bit deeper, you find out they're not that good. And I think there's a lesson here that we must be very careful about long-term ramifications, not just short-term gains. There were some short-term gains here, but there were long-term ramifications, and uh, it was important that they stand against heresy, but this was not the way to do it, not the way Constantine was going to do that. And here's, here's why. First of all, the power of the state was now going to be used to enforce orthodoxy. The Arian teachers, those that were teaching this false doctrine of Christ, were forbidden to teach and were banished from the kingdom. Again, that, you know, that seems good. Get rid of those guys. But if you allow the emperor this kind of position in the church, what happens when the emperor changes his mind? Which Constantine did later in his life. He never was baptized until right on his deathbed, and when he was baptized, he decided to be baptized by an Arian bishop which shows he didn't understand the issues at all. And then his son, uh, when he became emperor, actually was an Arian and banished all the Christians holding the right doctrine from the empire. So you can't put the emperor in charge of Christian things. So, uh, eventually this merging of church and state with the idea that all who live in a given region must conform to that religion brought an incredible amount of persecution to dissenting groups, including the true Christians. I'm talking about in the years and centuries that followed. Hundreds of thousands of people died because of what happened here. Mm -hmm. A thousand, I don't know, maybe you could probably say millions of lives were lost in holy wars because of this idea of the merging of church and state. This unbiblical religious system was just considered to be part of the Christian religion by most of the people of the Middle Ages. This was just standard Christianity. To challenge it was to be a heretic and to invite persecution. What I'm saying is that this system itself was an idol. It became the big religious idol for centuries. And uh, like I say, I won't have time to go into that this morning. Hopefully I, I can trace some of that, Lord willing, next time. So... How are we doing here? Yeah. All right. A couple more problems from what happened, and then I'll be quiet. Uh, a really big problem had to do with, now you have a situation, well, who really is in charge of the church? Is it the church leaders, later that would be the pope, 
or is it the emperor? And you have another big problem. You have the problem of the rich and powerful, often unconverted multitudes coming into the church. Because now it was the fashionable thing to be a Christian. The state endorsed this, you see. This was even a bigger problem after 380 A.D. when the emperor Theodosius made Christianity the, the official religion of the empire. You had to be a Christian. You know, it wasn't just a matter of tolerating Christianity. Then after 380, you had to be a Christian to be part of the empire. <clears throat> so uh, what's that do? It brings a lot of... Uh, thousands, millions of people into this realm of Christendom, most of which are unconverted. <clears throat> no true transforming of their lives. They're just born into this system. Uh, the true people of God who sought to live holy lives through the power of God, often they were the now the persecuted minority. Actually, it was just like it had been before the time of Constantine. The true Christians were being converted. But now you had masses of people professing the name of Christ. So again, what, I, what I'm bringing out here is that even though it was somewhat subtle, what you had is a total distortion of what it means to be a Christian and what Christianity is all about because of what happened here in the time of Constantine. Instead of individuals who had been born again through the work of the Holy Spirit and who recognized themselves to be part of the Church of God, God's true people, you had people who had become part of an earthly church-state system because they were born in a certain locality, the Roman Empire. And uh, being a Christian suddenly became a way to advance in society. So in this type of situation, you had people seeking positions in the church because of the power and prestige that came with these positions. You remember, I mean, this was, it's not like this thing wasn't around in, in a very small form in the early church because you had people who were trying to be in positions of uh, authority in the church. Uh, remember that Diotrephes, it said, who loved to be in first place in the church. But it became a far, far greater problem when the church was put in a position of prominence in the world. Now everybody wanted to uh, be part of this thing of Christianity and have these uh, privileged positions of leadership. So the church was no longer made up of the called out ones who were separated from the world and living for Christ. Now every person living in a given locality were, were Christians. If you were part of the state, you were part of the church. So you had a carnal church that lost its true power from God and began to look for power in numbers and in enforced uniformity by the state. Now, I, I don't want you to get the idea that there were no true Christians in the midst of all of that. I think there probably were. But so much of what was being done in the name of the Christianity was simply the idol of religion embracing the idol of power. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about the idol of power. People were embracing a form of religion, the religion of Christianity, without any heart knowledge of Christ. Well, I need to bring this to a close. Uh, let me just say this. I think it's good to try to contrast what we're talking about here when we talk about true Christianity and this idol of religion, the Christian variety of that. Uh, the idol of religion thrives on external things, rituals, buildings, ceremonies, even sacraments, rather than having a true heart knowledge of God, where your heart 
as it says in Hebrews, your heart is strengthened by grace. This idol of religion strengthens, is strengthened through all kinds of external things. So there's, there's one, I think, contrast. There's a confidence in fleshly things, numbers and positions and power, but not real rejoicing in Christ Jesus. The idol of religion uses elaborate, often mysterious things to enhance itself, formulas and uh, rituals, as opposed to Christianity, which is, you know, is very uh, simple in its worship and the simplicity of knowing Christ as opposed to all this stuff that came in at this time. When a religion is an idol, it tends to emphasize outward conformity to rules and uniformity among the people rather than the unity that the Holy Spirit brings where the church is recognized as a spiritual God-directed gathering. That's what the church is, a spiritual God-directed gathering of his people. Not something that's put on people from the outside, a forced uniformity of this is the way you're going to be as a Christian. And a bunch of legalism. The idol of religion will tend towards the traditions of men to the detriment of the word of God. The word of God takes second place to traditions that have been built up uh, from man. In other words, it's more man-centered than God-centered. Church tradition is big in relationship to this idol of religion. It's, It's equal or a lot of times more important than true biblical authority. The idol of religion often does not appreciate the importance of what I think could be called the progressive nature of revelation. And it puts the old covenant on par with the new covenant, thus taking people backward instead of forward in their understanding of God. True Christianity advances people from the shadows to the substance of Christ and rejoices in the progressive grace of God, God showing his people more. You don't go back and live back in the shadows which is a, a lot of, uh, we'll see that this next time. So much of what was built up in Christendom went back to the Old Testament. Yes. The idol of religion will often have a special priesthood class that handles and manipulates special sacraments and rituals as opposed to the priesthood of all believers. We're all, uh, we all can come before God because of what Christ has done for us. So, you have this special priest class um, that has to do these ceremonies and handle these mystical things um, as opposed to just, again, simple Christianity where all believers are part of the, the, the priesthood, priest to God, and each person can come individually to Christ and also minister to one another and uh, serve one another instead of having these Special people that have to do all the special things that uh, nobody even can understand unless you're part of the class, that special class of people. Uh, along with this, you often see an authoritarian leadership. Uh, we're talking about here in, in this idol of religion, lording it over the people, as opposed to Christ-like servant leadership. The idol of religion often emphasizes carnal, worldly power instead of the power of God. Instead of the weapons of our warfare, you know, as we're told, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The idol of religion often has that as a central uh, idea. We have to have this worldly power. Uh, That's why it often uses persecution. Religion seeks to advance itself through the arm of the flesh instead of seeking to advance the gospel through spiritual means of prayer, and speaking the truth in love. They, it, it's, it's like they, they, this religious thing loses track totally of what the kingdom of God is all about. The spiritual nature and, and zeroes in on an earthly kingdom. Uh, so, maybe just a couple more here. The idol of religion is often a cultural religion accepted by the world. 
not a countercultural Christian witness of pilgrims and strangers that are rejected by the world. It's, it's a cultural, it becomes a cultural establishment type of a thing that's accepted by the world. It will often emphasize this creed, creed without conduct where the professing church can be largely unregenerate, whereas the true, true Christianity emphasizes a believing church seeking to live holy lives and exercising church discipline. In other words, it's not, the true Christianity is not a dead orthodoxy, but a living faith. One more area here. The idol of religion brings bondage. True Christianity realizes that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free and is vigilant not to be subject again to the yoke of slavery. The idol of religion blinds its followers to their own idolatry. The, the idol of religion, this religious system, blinds its followers to their own idolatry, whereas true Christianity is always on guard to keep itself from idols. That's what John told us there. Little children, guard yourselves, keep yourselves from idols. And that, I would say, would be especially those idols that are an established and accepted part of the culture. We're, we're, we should be constantly seeking to, to see the things that would try to divert us from the true worship of Christ and following Christ because they, they're all around us. Well, I'll try to give some examples of some of these things next time. But in closing, I just say, may God help us to deal with the idols of our day. You know, you can see the ones back there because you have church history there to show what happened, what, what came from this. But what's going to come from some of the things that we're accepting? May God help us to deal with the idols of our day and cause us to live in a way that helps people to see the difference between a mere religious system and true Christianity. I had a bunch of things going through my mind as Dick was speaking, but one thing that I thought of, um, I think you see it illustrated. I know back uh, when uh, the U.S. Uh, was involved in the war with Iraq a few years back, um, I read something that the the people there thought of it as Christians fighting against Muslims. And see, it, the United States going to war has nothing to do with Christians. I mean, you know, when you think of what is a real Christian compared to the way they're thinking of a Christian. And that's the very same thing that was happening in the day of Constantine, except they're saying that all these people now are Christians. And... Um, some actually um, was a Theodosius that made it, that made it uh, the state religion. Everybody has to be a Christian. Some people view that as some great thing. They think that was really a triumph. Um, and the reason is of thinking of Christianity in this external way instead of thinking of true Christianity is always true Christianity is always outside the camp. It's the despised, rejected people. And um, the death of Christianity is whenever we become respectable. We really need uh, the grace of God to, to not fall into the desire to be accepted, respectable, and established. That's the death of true Christianity.